Daniel 7, 15 to 28 is where we'll pick up today. It is uh, where we'll finish out the first uh, section, I guess, of, of Daniel, chapters 1 to 7. Daniel 7 is a wonderful bridge then to 8 to 12, which gets more into prophecy. And I know I have a reputation, perhaps, amongst those who know me to be the Grinch that steals Christmas. Uh, don't, I don't believe in putting any songs on or decorations up until after Thanksgiving. Some are with me, many are against me in that. And so you may have come in here today and seen the decorations and thought we'd now be in an Advent series. Well, you have to wait one week for that officially. We'll start in Matthew 1 for a couple weeks next week. But honestly, when you see the, um, the nature of today's text and even what we've been in in Daniel 7, in the Lord's timing, really Daniel 7 is an Advent text because it is pointing forward to the Son of Man coming, the Son of God. And so I think actually in how it all works out, you'll be in Matthew 1 next week and you'll see, wow, this is amazing. We get to see the Son of God in, in his heavenly throne room here in Daniel 7, uh, both before and after. And then we get to start next week in Matthew 1 and see him in his uh, humility and in the incarnation. So we're thankful for that. This is the end of the world as we know it, according to Daniel. I hope you feel fine. And uh, how you feel about the end of the world is an interesting thought. When we know how it ends, and we have been saying it for the last few weeks, the God of heaven wins, we're now in part three of that, what impact does that actually have on how you feel about the end? And then what you do with your time that you have here. It made me think about, as an athlete, and I know thinking of yourself as an athlete, that may come easier to some than others, but uh, think of yourself as an athlete, and before you're going out to play the biggest game of your life, uh, your coach pulls the team aside and says, hey, chill out, everyone. I know how the game ends. We're going to win. And it's not just a motivational technique. For whatever reason, the coach explains he was given direct revelation about the outcome of the game, and it's, it's over. It's in the bag. You know you're going to win. How would you play the game? That could go one of two directions. Now, I know that's hard for me to think about because most of my career uh, going into games, it was I knew we were going to lose. So this was really a hard experiment for my thoughts. But to imagine and to know you're going to win the game and the outcome is sure, one of two directions. The, the first direction you could take would be to go out there and just give it everything you had because what? You got nothing to lose. Right? I mean, when we say, you know, go out and give it your best, you got, what do you got to lose? You know, the, the cynic in me was always like, the game? But to know you're going to win in the end, you could really go out and play with the most freedom to make whatever mistakes because the game's in the bag before it began. You could play with absolute abandon. That's one perspective of knowing the end is sure. The other one, and of course you already have thought of this, is what's the point? If we know we're going to win in the end, speaking on a sports analogy, and the game is sure, why even play? Like, or just stand out there and kind of, whatever, we're going to win. And I want to take that back and then think of it on a spiritual dimension. If we know in the end that the God of heaven wins and we do believe what we have seen so far in Daniel 7, that the Son of Man will rule and reign forever and ever, how does that impact the way you live now? Paul in Philippians 1.21 says, to, to live is Christ and to die is gain. There's a man who's living like there's nothing to lose except what? His life. And for him, he says that's gain because he gets Christ, he gets eternity. He, he's in that heavenly scene that we just sang of. What does he have to lose? His life, that means nothing to him. He even said that. Because he knows it's far better in Philippians 1 to go and be with Christ. And knowing about the end should have an effect on you as a child of God. That if the end is secured... That if you are on the winning side because you are on the side of God in Christ, we should live our lives with absolute abandon to the cause of Christ. It's not being foolish or taking unnecessary risks and saying, I know how it ends. No, that's not the point. The point is to go all in for Christ and to say, what do I have to lose? If I, this month, if I speak up 
to my neighbor that I'm just afraid to talk about Christ with and finally invite them next week, starting in the Advent series. If I finally get the courage to do it, what do I have to lose? But what does that person you care about have to gain? Eternal life. And that's the, that's the abandonment, the, the, the courage that we see Daniel live with and that we should live with, knowing that the God of heaven wins in the end. And that's, that's, a, that's a, a courageous view, but there's also the view we've talked about in 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3, that because we also know we're going to see him and we're excited for that, we, we just like you sang this morning so well, we rejoice in our hearts and it comes out in song to see our Savior, to say he is worthy. It also produces a holiness in our lives, 1 John 3, 2 and 3 said. What type of children should we be? Well, we should become more pure as he is pure. And it wasn't just John who had that thought. The Apostle John, writing in 1 John 3, uh, that thought was shared by Peter. 2 Peter 3, he talks about the end of the world as he knows it. And 2 Peter 3, verse 4, naysayers are saying, where is the promises of his coming? Talking about uh, the return of Jesus Christ. And people in the last days will say that. And his response is in verse 8, 2 Peter 3, Don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. And the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness. But why is he taking his time? Why is there delay, the delay in the turn of Christ? It's for the gospel mission. He is patient, not wishing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. And yet the next verse, verse 10 it doesn't mean we sit back and say, well, since we don't know when that is, let's just chill. No, he says, you, the day of the Lord will come like a thief and you need to be ready. Verse 11, what, what sort of people ought you to be? And he says, the answer, you ought to be people who live lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. So it's Peter, it's the Apostle John, and in Paul's writings, it's that same looking forward and waiting mentality. You hear it in uh, Romans 13, 11 to 13, as he exhorts those believers to, to live as children of the day where your good deeds are seen, not children of the night where you're trying to hide your sin. It's all through the New Testament mentality. Jesus is coming back and that should produce in us holiness, but also urgency. So as we're in Daniel 7 and we, we are getting a... a an end times look at the absolute end when it all comes to an end. It, may, it can't merely just be for our minds, our thinking to say, well, that's interesting. I really hope he finally unveils his view today on whether the Antichrist is Elon Musk. You know, I'm sure Adam thinks about this all the time and, you know, he's got an effervescent personality, Elon Musk, not me. Uh, you know, and he just seems to fit the bill of the Antichrist. Like if that's what you're coming to this with or walking out with, you're just missing a little bit. No, a lot. It's to produce in you greater love and longing for Christ. And that's the sum of the matter Daniel states that when we look at the end times, we care about the details. He writes them down. He ponders. Verse 8, he ponders the horns. It's okay to do that. I never want to you know, douse the fires of your uh, eschatological interests of the end times, but I want to make sure your love for Christ is what we ignite here. Because it's interesting, the warning that Christ gives when he says at the end that when the lawlessness increases in the tribulation in the end times, what's the effect on, the, on those who say they follow him? Their love will grow cold. That's that's what we have to fear, not the persecution of the end. That our love, that persecution, the lawlessness in society would make our love for the Lord grow cold. It's the greatest danger there is for us. And so how do we keep that love alive? How do we keep it burning hot? That in these passages, we keep our eyes on Christ. doesn't mean we're not going to actually today of all places. We're going to talk way more about the Antichrist than Christ. Just where we are, Merry Christmas, you know, way to kick off December, Adam, Antichrist. We'll get there. But it still ends with good news, the God of heaven wins. So follow along with me as I read Daniel chapter 7, 
uh, 15 to 28. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up and before three of them fell, that horn had eyes and a mouth and spoke great things and was greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came. And judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said to me, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High." His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. May God bless the preaching and hearing today that he would open our eyes to see the wonderful things in his word. Well, we'll start with Daniel now moving from his visions in 1 through 14 and visions of grandeur, visions of the ancient of days, the father, visions of the son of man, to now what was still keeping him what, verse 15 says, anxious. And uh, verses 15 to 18 start with um, him getting an encapsulation from this angel that's standing where they're with him in verse 16. We don't know who that angel is. We know later in chapters 9 and 10, the angel Gabriel appears. Same angel Gabriel that came in, in the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. Well, this angel, and it could be he's in this scene and there's thousands of thousands and it just could be any angel and he grabs the guy closest to him. But it starts with him being alarmed by what he's seeing, which is not uncommon in Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4 was greatly alarmed by the vision he had of his own end. And then when he tells Daniel that vision in chapter 4 and then verse 19, Daniel's alarmed and distressed for Nebuchadnezzar because he knows that end. Daniel's different here in that he's not alarmed by what he knows, he's alarmed by what he doesn't know. And as we can see as we read, it's what he doesn't know about the fourth beast. So just to kind of set the table, long story short, he asks the angel to make known to him the interpretation of the things because he's alarmed, he's distressed, he's fearful even. And I think that's worth just stopping and saying being fearful is not always the issue with us. We can't control the circumstances around us that produce fear in us. What we can do is turn those fears to faith. We don't live in our fears as a daily occurrence, even though they're real. They may be fears like Daniel has of some unknown of the future or realities that we do know. But we have to say, how do I take my fears and turn those into faith? Well, it's, it's when you go to what you know about who God is and who you are as his child that strengthens your faith. And don't believe me, believe John. 1 John 4 is talking about a true believer, 1 John 4.15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Sounds like a guy like Daniel. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Do you go back to that truth when you're fearful? 
the gospel truth that you've confessed that Jesus is the Son of God and you know this isn't a, a merely an intellectual knowledge. This is a, a heart knowledge. This is assurance. You know this. This is your faith speaking. We have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. That's your communion, your relationship with God. And what does it do, verse 17? By this is love perfected with us so that we have confidence for the day of judgment. Day of judgment for a lot of people is a fearful thought. Am I right with God? Because as he is, also are we in this world. Well, we are right with God. He is overcome. So verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. And fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Why did I want to take that little rabbit trail this morning? Because it's one thing to see Daniel is alarmed and distressed and dismayed and fearful. And that's part of being human. It's not even irrational. But we're not to live in our irrational fears about the unknown. And the remedy in 1 John 4 and talking about a day of judgment is not to look inward to yourself for an answer or outward to circumstances. You look up to God and say, do I know that he loves me? I do. How do I know? What did 1 John 4 say? Because he sent his son to die for you. And that understanding of the perfect love of God for you in Christ begins to drive out the fear you have of the unknown. Starting with perhaps the greatest fear, the fear of death. Sure, there's an unknown place and time. Only God knows that. But, but what happens then for the believer? Perfect love casts out fear. I'll be with the one who loved me and gave his life for me. So just a short side note that I think is worth seeing. In a man of faith like Daniel, he can be anxious about the future, but he doesn't live in those fears. In fact, verse 16, he does something with them. He wants to know the truth. He, he, he wants to go back to what, what could God possibly be saying here rather than just, woe is me, I'm afraid. No, he goes to this angel. He wants to know the truth concerning all this. And what, what, what does the angel say back? Long story short, verse 17 and 18 God wins in the end. I mean, he, the angel gives him the most summarized version of all he just saw in verses 1 to 16. These four great beasts are four kings representing kingdoms who shall arise out of the earth. And we already saw that in verses 1 to 8 two weeks ago. But here's the great turn. The saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Notice what the angel adds to the vision that would be strengthening to Daniel. He adds that, but the saints of the Most High, as in whatever could be fearful for Daniel, a saint, one who was in exile for, for the last few decades in Babylon and doesn't know what the future holds for himself, but he knows the future for God's people is they will be restored. This angel gives him a, an encouragement that the saints who belong to the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever. That same kingdom that back in Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, that he told Nebuchadnezzar, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. So however long in the past it was, however many decades earlier, Daniel was telling King Nebuchadnezzar, God's going to set up a kingdom that will never pass away. Daniel now needed encouraged in that same truth. Isn't that like faith? Something you might have been so strong and and landed on years ago and you were going through the season where here you're the Daniel encouraging Nebuchadnezzar saying this is what the future holds you're not prophetic in that way you're saying I believe I trust you gotta believe and then you find yourself decades later needing that same encouragement isn't that like faith it can ebb and flow and it takes highs and lows but we don't live in those lows when we take them back to God's word and that's what gets us out of it. So Daniel receives good news. Long story short, what do the saints get at the end of the end? Forever, forever and ever, amen. Randy Travis fans out there. It's, it's a wonderful song of the end. It's the song of the redeemed, receiving the kingdom and possessing it forever. Note, we do not capture and take the kingdom for ourselves. You see, the passive reception of the kingdom 
and possession. It's given to us. And that's a, um, a reboot that we have been seeing back to Genesis 1, just as God gave Adam and Eve dominion and authority and rule and reign in the first Eden. And it was a gift to be stewarded. And we lost it in sin and have lost it ever since. Now the Son of Man has recaptured it back in 13 and 14. And he's going to give it back. We get to receive it again. A return to Eden, if you will. Long story short, salvation now and forever is all of grace, friends. It's all of grace. How we come into the kingdom is, is the grace of God and how we will possess it forever and rule and reign forever, forever and ever with him is all of grace. Start your morning remembering that it's all of grace. That is, that is where we always need to start. Everything we've been given from God is his grace to us. Long story short, verses 19 to 22 there's one last question, and it reminds me of my favorite detective show growing up, watching with my grandma, Columbo, who, when everybody thought they were in the clear and he's about to walk out of the room, what does he do? Oh, wait, one more question. And then you know he's got the person. And so Daniel kind of has this moment where the angel gives him a short summary, but Daniel desired to know the truth about the fourth beast. And that's how we understand what is his alarm. There's a portion of this future that just gives him some dismay or anxiety. And it seems to be focused on the fourth beast. Why? Well, listen to the profile on this fourth beast. Different from the rest. Saw that already in 1 to 8. Exceedingly terrifying. Uh-huh. With it, it devour its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, symbolic of just a war machine. Uh, doing what? Devouring and breaking in pieces and just decimating the earth. That's what this kingdom can do. And then within this kingdom, there's 10 horns on its head and there was a horn that came up and bumped three of those horns out. And this horn now is focusing in on an individual, really personifying uh, the eyes and the mouth that uh, spoke great things and made it greater than its companions. This is a king of kings, earthly speaking. That would be troubling to Daniel because he has already interpreted some dreams where he knows, hey, kingdoms are going to pass along and, and um, he has passed that information along to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2. But there's a detail now in 21 and 22 that he brings out that maybe is the troubling part of them all. As I look, this horn made war with the who? The saints. Could that be the troubling part? That's a detail that was spared in 17 and 18. Hey, yeah, you know, the angel says, here's the short of it. Uh, these beasts are kings and they'll come out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High receive the kingdom and win. And Daniel, in wanting more information about the end, gives another detail for this angel to interpret. I looked closer, and that one horn, the boastful one, the prideful one, is making war. He's making life hard on the saints. And what does that say? prevails over them, dominates them, subdues them. I think that would give Daniel some distress. He loves God's people. And this is what the future looks like when this king comes into power. Now he does move on in 22, until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And again, this is God has to intervene, verse 22. It's God who's going to turn this around. Judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. And here we are back to the beginning. So that's the conclusion of the matter for Daniel. He adds a few more details in for the angel to uh, give him an answer. I get those other three kings. They come and go. They pass off the scene. But this last one that's hanging around, in my vision, I saw this last horn, this 11th horn, this, this one that could see and speak and boast prevailing over God's people. I think that's where the alarm comes from. So now, the interpretation for the angel to give to Daniel, the worst of times, verses 23 to 25. And, and this, is, this is where the fun starts when it comes to connecting the dots in Scripture. Now, we've only been able to move backwards so far and say, what do we already know in Daniel about this these kings and kingdoms, but now we get some more details that help us to narrow it in. 
just like we'll get in the rest of Daniel when we get back to it in the new year. Verse 23, thus the angel said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all the kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it into pieces. So that fourth kingdom that Daniel has known back to chapter 2, the last one before the kingdom of God comes. This is the kingdom, though, that's going to have the greatest opposition to God. If we remember in the story, these successive kingdoms are done away with by the prior ones. Just so in the time of Daniel, Babylon was done away with. We saw that at the end of uh, chapter 5. The kingdom of Babylon ends when Darius the Mede receives the kingdom and the Medo-Persians set it up. Now, Daniel's writing this vision at the time that hasn't happened yet. But then after that one, then comes the Greek kingdom. And it's the leopard with wings. It's, it's more powerful and swift than, than any of the other kingdoms. And it expands faster. But still, that one is going to be overcome by this fourth kingdom. So he wants to know about it. And it's the beast that it's a kingdom on earth. It's got a certain amount of expanse. And it's different from the prior ones. And there's so much destruction and power in this kingdom that it's like it's opening its mouth and just swallowing everyone whole. But notice the detail in verse 23. It is a kingdom on earth. This isn't all just spiritual business. There, this is happening down here in the future on earth. There are differing views of the end. And some views of the future, we'll call it, one is that when you get to Revelation 20 and you talk about a thousand year reign of Christ on earth from verses 1 to 10, some think that's kind of more a spiritual, just it. It's allegory, it's imagery, and it doesn't touch down in actual physical realities, almost like just the reality of good versus evil. And that would uh, be called the amillennial position. It's, there is no thousand-year millennium, and you know, right now we're actually in the battle of good versus evil, and so it spiritualizes a lot away. It doesn't actually touch down a lot in Scripture. If there's anything confusing, it's just kind of seen as, well, it's just the battle of good and evil, like you know, Lord of the Rings or something. The bad guys versus the good guys. The post-millennial view of the future means Christ comes after a thousand years of, well, and it's not always in the post-millennial view, a literal thousand years, but it's a time of war between good and evil, and Christ doesn't come before that thousand, he comes at the end, hence post-millennial. The premillennial position is what we teach here at this church, that we say before that thousand-year reign, there is seven years of tribulation, and that's detailed in very imaginary language in Revelation chapters 6 through 19. And that is the time of tribulation that halfway through, we'll get to it later, that the Antichrist, now we know who he is, and, and all hell breaks loose on earth. But prior to that, there's a rapture that First Thessalonians 4 talks about, and we'll look at that a little bit later, that the church is removed from it. And that's called the premillennial position. That's the one we teach, which is that God doesn't have it for his children, the church on earth, that when the time of tribulation starts, for us to have to go through it. That we would be removed from it. And some people say, well, a rapture, really? People, you know, look around this room, everybody flying up into the sky. Well, he's God, and he does what he pleases, right? And he did it with Elijah. Enoch walked with God and was gone. So if he can do it with one, and we've seen that in the past in the Bible, why can't he do it all at once? He's God. And when the scripture storyline seems to fit that, together, which we'll look a little bit at that today later. Why wouldn't we want to believe that rather than just say, you know, that, that's allegory, that's imagery, and we don't really have any understanding about it. Back to the Antichrist. Uh, this is the one now, verse 24, out of these 10 horns, and again, this is 10 kings. He, he tells us the 10 horns are 10 kings. They're actually real leaders, and another shall arise after them. There's an 11th leader, and he's different. He's distinct from these prior kings, and he'll put down three of those ten. Why three? Who knows? Like any power pull, maybe sometime in the future, there's an alliance of powers in the world, uh, ten countries with ten, call them what you will, presidents, dictators, uh, prime ministers. We don't know. They're kings, because we're in the time of kings. And out of those ten, there might be three that really have the vision for the future, but then one comes and he puts aside the rest of these. And we get now a little profile of who this uh, super king is, this antichrist figure is. 
by some of the characteristics in verses 24 and 25. Let's walk through them. First, you see that he puts down three other kings, so he must have some political savvy, end of verse 24. He must have the ability to rise above the power of the rest of the kings at this time of a future fourth kingdom on earth. Second, he has religious scorn. He shall speak words against the Most High. And he, he wants to wear out the saints of the Most High. He, he's scornful towards the one true God, and he wants to even bully the believers who are on earth at that time. So it's both a, a prideful boasting, as we've seen in verse 8, a mouth speaking great things. And we see in verse uh, 21, this horn, this 11th king made war with the saints and prevailed over them. He's saying, yes, this guy will be bad. He will speak uh, words against the one true God and he'll want to wear out the saints of the Most High. Now flip over with me just for a little bit this morning to Revelation 13, where we see some parallels. Revelation 13 starts with a beast rising out of the sea with 10 horns, but this is John's vision of the future, not Daniel's. So there might be some similarities and there could be some differences. It's important to note both. He only sees one beast and it's got leopard qualities, bear qualities, lion qualities. Well, that may be in John's vision of the future in 90 AD. That he, when he's seeing, he's seeing a similar view of the future, but all of the powers of all those four kingdoms from before in Daniel chapter 7, he just sees them as one. That's okay. Does that change any of the outcome of it? Well, read on. And the people that want to follow this beast are worshiping the dragon, Satan, and he's the dragon throughout the book of Revelation. And he has given authority to the beast, and that's why this beast, this fourth beast, this 11th horn is Antichrist. He is being given authority, and he is being worshipped, and people are saying, who is like this beast? Who can fight against us? You know, that political savvy, that religious scorn. People see this guy as a real winner. He's, he's able to um, enthrall the world with his vision for the future of it. And here's the similarities, verse 5. This beast in Revelation 13.5 was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Now go back to the detail in Daniel 7.25. This prideful, boastful king speaking against God, speaking against his people. All these things are given into his hand, just like the language in verse 5 in Revelation 13, for a time, times, and half a time. Well, time, times, and half a time as many interpreters would take, would be a year, two years, and a half year, three and a half years. 42 months being three years. There's where some of the connections of, hey, is that all symbolic language of time, times, and half a time? Or when you have something like Revelation 13 that parallels and even fits some puzzle pieces together, that's where the premillennial view of the seven years of the rapture, or the seven years of tribulation, and three and a half years in, this beast that at one point fooled the whole world into saying, I'm going to follow that guy. What a great leader. Now you start to see his true cards. And that's also paralleled in um, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 to 12, of, of what he's trying to do. He's trying to deceive the world in order to destroy it. So he opens his mouth to other blasphemies against God, blaspheming the name in his dwelling and those who dwell in heaven. Verse 7 in Revelation 13, and this beast was also allowed, now he's on the leash still, God is still sovereign. He's allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And all those who still dwell on the earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life. So... You parallel this account in verses 23 to 25 and you see similar visions between John of the future and Daniel of the future, both including this antichrist character who has characterized by political savvy, religious scorn. Uh, look at the pride at the end of verse 25, left this one out. He shall think to change the times and the law. Now where have we seen that language in Daniel before? Who alone has all power to rule over times and seasons. Daniel chapter 2, verse 20 and 21. Daniel is giving praise to God when God has revealed the vision of Nebuchadnezzar to him. And he says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and night. God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Well, what is this anti-God, anti-Christ character doing? He's trying to take the place that only God has to say, you know what? 
In my vision of the future, here's what we're going to change. We're going to change these times. We don't need this, this calendar system. Or, or maybe it could be, you know, that when you look around the world, you know, most Sundays are seen as still a day of rest. You know, we're not persecuted or punished for taking a day off today. It's the Lord's day. Could he want to change that because he has so much scorn for the Most High God? And he wants to wear out the saints of the Most High? That could be within the realm of possibility. All we know is he's trying to show himself as, how much power does this guy think he has? Power enough to change the times and the laws. I came across an interesting article from a few years ago about, uh, well, the article is in The Economist, so from a secular point of view, but the um, title gives it away. Rulers of time. Clocks and calendars provide a timeless way for regimes to illustrate their power. And it was an article written, I think it was 2015, about um, North Korea. And it started off with saying, North Korea will go back in time on August 15th, turning back its clocks by half an hour to establish its own time zone. It seems appropriate for a country that venerates its past. This kingdom already has its own calendar, starting with the year 1912, the birth of the year of its founder and eternal president, Kim Il-sung. Then it goes on to say, its time traveling, North Korea's, is the latest example of a long tradition of expressing political power by adjusting clocks and calendars. Doing so alters a fundamental aspect of daily life. And what better illustration could there be of a ruler's might than control over time itself? Now, hear me loud and clear. I'm not saying the current leader of North Korea is the Antichrist. I think it actually just goes on to prove the point, 1 John 2.18, that children, it's the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared, as in ones who want to take up the authority and power of God, and in that want to exercise that authority. And so you could say throughout history, and you could go down the list and and if you want to make your own top 10 list of these type of rulers like the 10 horns, have at it. But the point is, many will come with this antichrist behavior. I'm sovereign. I rule and reign. I'm going to change the times. I'm going to change the laws. There is no God. Follow me. And that's what you walk away with looking at this profile of the antichrist in verse 25. And all of this will be given into his hand. As in God is still sovereign. God is still on the throne. God is still in control. All of it is still like the beginning of Daniel 1. Given, not taken. Because at any moment when God wants to what? End this guy's life and remove him from power. He does. And that's how the story ends in verses 26 and 27. Just like that, that court that was mentioned with the ancient of days and a stream of fire and thousands around God worshiping him, the court sat in judgment, Daniel 7.10. The books were opened. Well, when the books get opened then the court sits in judgment and it's time for this Antichrist to be done with, God does away with him, verse 26. His dominion is taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. Read Revelation 19 and 20. That's the end of it all. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the, most, the people of the saints of the Most High. The kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and dominion shall serve and obey him. That's Revelation 21-22. I mean, that's how it ends. That's the good news that we live in is verses 26 and 27. The courts will be opened. Judgment will be had for this character. He'll be consumed and destroyed to the end. And then the kingdom and dominion and greatness of all the kingdoms under all of heaven shall be given to God's saints. There it is again. God doing the giving to us. Not us reaching for it ourselves, not us trying to bring the kingdom of God in by our own worldly efforts. What's our greatest worldly effort? Sharing the gospel. You bring someone into the kingdom of God, not by force, but by the word of God working in their life. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ being shared with a person has more power than any king has to change times and seasons because you change that person's eternal destiny. That's the power you have as a saint. Not to come around with some coalition to, to secure the future of the saints. That's our future. Now we're taken up 
But there will be some who will come to Christ in that tribulation period and will make it through to the end and will rule and reign with all of them for the thousand years in Revelation 21 to 10. And then Revelation 21, new heavens and new earth. He starts over with the whole thing, which was already mentioned back in 2 Peter 3. Everything's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a total meltdown how God's going to bring back the new heavens and new earth. If you want to believe in climate change, believe in that one. That's how this earth is going away. And it's in 2 Peter 2, or 2 Peter chapter 3. Now, you do you. Recycle. Go for it. Honestly. I mean, you, your own conviction of how you want to take care of the planet, wonderful. Just know we're not destroying it. God's over that one too. He's got every detail covered. And it doesn't mean we live foolishly and we thumb our nose at people. Why? That wouldn't be a good witness. Because right after we, we get the ending and how God's going to bring it all to an end in 2 Peter 3, we're told to live what? Lives of godliness and holiness. So we don't go around mocking people for their views of how they think the world is going to end. We're going to tell them the truth. You know the future. You know how it's going to play out. And because you want to see them in eternity, you can look past whatever temporary views they have of how they think things are going to go. Because you care about their soul. You want them to know Christ. Because when it comes down to it, that's the final, that's the final word Christ has for all of us. When we talk about the end times today, Revelation 22, Christ still has one more word for us at the end. Verse 12, behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I want you to think about that. He came the first time to save. That's what we're going to celebrate this month in the Advent. The unbelievable reality that the Son of God would come to this earth not on a mission to set up his kingdom and be worshipped, but to what? Stoop to serve and give his life as a ransom for many so that we could worship him. So that we could be changed. So Jesus says in Revelation 22, 14, uh, 12, I'm coming soon and it now will be this second coming for judgment. But here's the offer of salvation to you today. Verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes so they might have the right to the tree of life and enter by the city gates. How do you get into heaven? How do you return to the tree of life, paradise lost? You don't do it of your own making. You come by the blood of Christ washing your filthy robes. Your works, born into this world, a sinner by nature and choice, we are clothed in our sin. And our robe needs washed in the blood of Christ to be white as snow. And he gave his life for you for that reason. And he offers you the blessing of forgiveness. But that's on you now. Do you believe? As, as fantastical and out there is what you have heard this morning. Maybe you're new to our church, new to the Bible and... You're like, what are we talking about? Beasts and horns and, you know, antichrist. Don't let all of that lose sight of the one message to you today. Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And I'm not telling you to make him Lord of your life today. He is Lord of all. Right now, ruling and reigning. What you need is to bow your knee before him now while you can. To say, I'm not Lord of my own life. I'm not my own king or queen. God, you are. And you loved me enough to send your son for me. Of course you're worthy of worship. Do you trust him today? For the believer, we leave with the wonderful hope that we've been told all along. We, we don't have to be fearful. Look back at where Daniel ends here in verse 28. It's such an interesting thing to me. Here is the end of the matter, he says. So it's case closed. But then he repeats what was bugging him at the beginning. As for me, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed and I kept the matter in my heart. How come it didn't solve it for him? Well, I don't know. But I do know that he didn't know what you know. What I read you today in 1 John 3, he didn't have that revelation he knew how great God's love was for him as, as, 
An Israelite, as a child of God, by, by what? By being born into it and then believing in faith that there was a God of the heavens who reigns. But what detail of the story do we have that we talked about in Luke 10 last week that the prophets didn't have? Why are we blessed, Jesus says? Because we have been shown the gospel, the good news. And when we're afraid and we're greatly alarmed and our hearts are heavy, we can look to Christ. And in Christ, we are given the promise that, yes, God really loves me. All the way to the end. Every aspect of my existence covered by the love of God in Christ. And nothing, no tyrant, no ruler, no antichrist can what? Separate me or you, believer, from the love of God in Jesus. That's the end of the story. That's why our thoughts don't need to be greatly alarmed like Daniel's were with that one missing piece of the equation. He had enough to believe and to endure and to be a man of faith. Praise God for that. But why Jesus says we're so blessed is because we get the full story. Nothing left out for our good to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength because he first loved us. And the greatest threat to our hope and faith in Christ when we read passages like this is not the persecution. It's not. In fact, we're, we're promised it. Jesus says they'll, they'll hate you as they hated me. Our greatest threat sounds like this at the end. Matthew 24, 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. That's not your greatest threat as a believer. Verse 12. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. It's our greatest threat to our faith. That in a time of persecution and unrest and trial, it doesn't have to be at the end. It could be right now in your life. That your love for the Lord Jesus Christ would grow cold. That's what we have to protect ourselves against, right? That every week you come in here to worship Christ. To hear of of Christ and his, his hopes and promises to us. Not some end times view that you're probably going to email me this week and say you disagree with. Have at it. I'll enjoy the conversation. Man, that'd be missing the point though. The sum of the matter is look to Christ's day and let your heart be warmed by his love for you, the sinner, that he gave his life for you. And that's what we're going to celebrate now as we turn our hearts to communion. You could take out the, the, uh, the bread and the cup. And since we're already in Matthew at the end, let's turn to Matthew 26. It says, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing, it broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to him saying, drink of it, all of you. Why? What's so precious about this passage today as it relates to Revelation I just couldn't get over, I was, I was meditating on this and thinking about taking the Lord's table today. Just what jumped out at me was in both the bread and the blessing and breaking, the last phase of it is giving and saying, take and eat. And the same with the cup. He takes the cup and when he gave thanks, he gave it to them. What did the passage keep reminding the saints today? You're going to be given the kingdom at the end. You will receive it because it follows the pattern of the scripture that we are always what? Recipients of the grace of God, not earners. You didn't earn any of what this symbolizes. It's given. Jesus, in in taking the bread, didn't say, now I broke it, go get you some. Did he? Gave it. 
Just like he gave his life. He gave his body to be broken. He gave his blood to be poured out. Why? So that then the one command that we have to fulfill is what here? Take it and eat. Drink up. I set the table. I made the meal. I gave my life. Now you take it. It's been given. It's a finished meal. He set it on the cross. So while we await his return, what do we do in the meantime? We remember that this symbolizes he finished it. You're not adding anything to it. You don't even have to reach for it. He reaches it to you and says, take it and eat. Take the cup and drink of it. And remember, my body and my blood given for you. It's finished. So let's take the bread. And as they were eating, Jesus took it and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat. This is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for two things in particular on my heart. That the work is finished. That Christ, you accomplished our redemption. And also that the end is finished. We just haven't lived it out yet. That we are promised here. That we, in some way beyond all that we can imagine, get to rule and reign with you forever. Lifted out of this world and into the next. We don't know when that day will come for us. We don't know, Christ, if your return will come first. All we know is you've got us. And that promise is true. So thank you for the finished work at the cross. And thank you for the finished work at the end. That you alone are God and know the beginning to the end. And in that our hope remains. In Christ's name.